Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. All right. Well, we recently talked about climate models with Christopher Essex. But I think this is a subject that is worth many shows. And coincidentally, there was a great new paper out uh, by Craig Idso, whom you may remember from an earlier podcast. I think he's one of our best guests ever. He's also cited in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels in Chapter 4 on the fertilizer effect. Uh, But also, it was written by Sherwood Idso, who is, in my view, a legend in the field, and Craig Idso's father. So this is someone who did a lot of the pioneering experiments on the nature of atmospheric CO2, including how it has this fertilizer effect. That's my term for it, not his, uh, but also other aspects of it, including how much warming it actually causes in the atmosphere. And I asked Craig to be on the show to talk about this new paper, and he asked if Sherwood could come on as well. And I said, no, no, just kidding. I said, yeah, absolutely, that would be awesome. So we will have Craig Edso and Sherwood Edso to discuss their new paper, among other topics, on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined again by Dr. Craig Idso, who's chairman of the Center for, Study of, for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change, And we have a special surprise guest, and you may have seen his picture in the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. This is uh, the esteemed Dr. Sherwood Idso, who's president of the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. So among other things, this is the first uh, duo of guests we've had on Power Hour, and I'm very excited for this one in particular. So thank you both for coming. Thank you for having us, Alex. All right. Well, since uh, we, and I'm going to be on a first name basis here. Since we have uh, Sherwood here, Sherwood, could you tell us about your background and in particular when you got into this field of climate science? Because I know you have a long history in it. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. And after graduating from high school there, I went down to the University of Minnesota, uh, where I uh, got a bachelor's degree in physics but then uh, the day after I got that, I started taking freshman biology and ended up uh, looking at the effects of carbon dioxide on plants. Um, after getting both a master's and PhD there, I took a position at the U.S. Water Conservation Laboratory in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I think I began there sometime in about mid-1967. And... Uh, after I had worked oh, about a dozen years or so there, mostly on plants, I got uh, interested in the global warming phenomenon and started uh, uh, looking at that in more detail. And uh, I did a lot of what I referred to as natural experiments, where something could change in the environment and you could see what impact it would have on the temperature, um, like uh, higher water vapor content of the air, 
what happens when the residue of dust from a dust storm remains in the atmosphere, how this affects the incoming radiation of the surface of the Earth. And I had about, a, I don't know, 10 or 11 different ways of evaluating that. And every time I did it, I got approximately the same answer. And the answer was about a warming only about a tenth as much as what uh, the global warming community at that time was predicting would result from a doubling of the air's CO2 concentration. So I started publishing a lot of papers in that area. Ended up working uh, with the government then until about the year 2001 when uh, I retired um, to uh, become more, in, in, more involved in the, uh, in the work of the center that uh, my son uh, basically has, has created. So that's sort of a brief history of where I come from. I'm very intrigued by the type of experiment that you're discussing because usually we hear a lot about models and of course we'll be discussing models extensively today because you have a new paper out uh, mm -hmm. about it. But could you just take maybe water vapor or one of the other potential drivers and talk about the type of experiment you would set up? I think what I did was um, measure the incoming thermal radiation from the sky without um, any clouds, just a, a regular sky, and then um, do that and do that first when it's uh, very dry and then when there's a lot more moisture in the air and uh, see how much the incoming thermal radiation of the, uh, from the sky uh, changed between those two things and how that uh, compared with um, the, di change, the, the difference in incoming thermal radiation uh, that I got, I compared that against the incoming thermal radiation predicted by the models for a doubling of the CO2 content of the air. And uh, so we're looking at the amount of incoming thermal radiation from the atmosphere that is changed by one of these, both of these phenomena. One is the CO2 content of the air, the other was the water vapor content of the air. And for the, and I found out that the, that the temperature varied by only a tenth as much as it did with these predictions with respect to CO2. And I, I, I had about a dozen different ways of doing this. Uh, one was with the water vapor. One was with dust in the atmosphere. And uh, I can't remember. Venus and Mars. Yeah, I even did something with the with, uh, atmospheres of Venus and Mars, maybe. can't remember. I don't I've written so many things over so many years, it's almost impossible for me to remember everything I've done. So how did your methodology, and this, this will probably get us into the subject of models, how did your methodology differ from those who were predicting uh, 10 times the impact that you found in your studies? Uh, this is Craig, and I guess maybe I'll answer that. The, the big difference is that uh, my father's work was based on empirical data analyses. So he was working with real-world data, whereas the models are computer, computer uh, algorithms and, and programs and so forth. They're math mathematical representations of the globe. So that's the crux of the difference between the two approaches. You know, one is, is using real-world data, and the other is using, you know, obviously the models are based on some data, but, but they're extrapolating that, and they're, 
they're assuming that they are incorporating all the pertinent physical, chemical, and biogeochemical processes that are important to nature and climate on the earth. All right. Well, this, this gets us into the topic of modeling and you have this, you know, this new paper, which has mathematical models versus real world data, which best predicts earth's climate, a climatic future. And before we get started on the models, I'm a little bit confused as to what real world data means in the context of something like global climate. So just to give you my own confusion at this point, which I imagine will be shared by others, uh, my tendency is to think, okay, the reason why they do things via model is that you're dealing with this immensely complex system that you can't really grasp as a whole. And then also with data, I mean, data is, is the past or the present, not the future. You need to be able to figure out the future. So data by itself couldn't tell you much about what the future would be, although, of course, it could potentially give you trends, but then can you get the trends on a wide enough scale? So I'm not sure what real-world data means. So could you explain that in the context of the global climate system? Yeah, let me try again. Um, the, the, the models look at how much the temperature at the surface of the Earth will change for, let's say, a 300 part per million increase in the CO2 content of the atmosphere. And based upon certain theory, they calculate how much it should change. In my situation, I measured the changes, the real world changes in the long wave radiation coming to the surface of the Earth when there was, let's say, more moisture in the air or more dust. And I found out that for the same uh, but for the same amount of, of uh, incoming radiation or incoming dust, the result that I got was only one-tenth as big as what they were predicting all just based on theoretical assumptions as to how much uh, the uh, incoming radiation of the, to the surface of the Earth would change by doubling the air's CO2 content. So what, what would be their counter to that? I mean, pr presumably if it, if it were just, if it were just fully proved that under any hypothetical set of feedbacks or any possible set of feedbacks, 300 parts per million would lead to this very, very mild warming. It seems like if you could definitively prove that, then that would be yeah. one thing. But so I'm not, I'm not sure the status exactly what what the implications are. Your experiment has obviously has some implications, but I'm not sure what the full implications are and how they would respond to that. Yeah, I think a lot of the difference is you know, maybe we can simplify it by mentioning that the models are assumed correct based on this sensitivity value. So they they calculate a particular rise in temperature for, for a uh, doubling of CO2, for example, and then they. You know, they project out what's going to happen in the future as the CO2 concentration rises, given that certain sensitivity. And it's a projection. It's not really based on, uh, on real-world data. So when, when someone comes out and says the temperature of the Earth in 2100 is going to be 3.5 degrees Celsius warmer, we expect also to have a higher in incidence of floods, um, more frequent, more severe, drought, and those sorts of things, that's all model projections based on this climate sensitivity. Their projections, they're estimating that to happen using these computer algorithms. Whereas what we've done and what we do and what, what my father's done is 
he looks at, well, is that sensitivity really occurring in nature? Is that what we see in nature? And that's kind of what we've done with this study here is we've taken these model projections that suggest that, you know, such and such should be happening in the future. And, and we try to test their validity. And how do you do that? Well, one way is to wait till the year 2100 and to see if they got it right. Another way is to, is to evaluate how good the models are based upon a principle called hindcasting, where instead of going forward in time and making these projections as the CO2 concentration changes, they'll go backwards in time because the CO2 concentration has been rising over the last you know, 100, 150 years. And they'll, they'll estimate how the temperature should have changed for that, that and, and the climate, how it should have changed for that given increase in CO2. Well, we can actually test the models on that hindcast to see how good and how accurate they are um, going back in time, comparing it with real-world data, in other words, observations, just observations that were taken by individuals or, or um, um, automated weather stations and so forth. And, and so that's what we've done. We've looked at various studies, various peer-reviewed papers where scientists have actually compared model runs versus these real-world data that were actually measured. And we evaluate them based upon that because if, you know, it, it's our hypothesis that if the models can hindcast well, then we would expect that they can hind, that they could forecast well into the future. But if they can't hindcast well, if they can't get it right for what's already occurred, then how in the world should we trust anything that they're projecting in the future? So if it's if it's possible to do these natural experiments and and get a good idea of the climate sensitivity to CO2, how is it that they are coming up with much, much higher values? How, how is it that they can maintain that despite direct evidence uh, to their contrary? Well, we think that, that they, they can't do that. And so what we've done in this uh, paper that we've been talking about here, we look at studies that have been done by people who are climate scientists who have tried to evaluate uh, different things that their models uh, are expected to do. For instance, in terms of clouds, we found um, 33 original scientific studies of the subject, along with uh, 34 relevant citations that they make to other studies. And we have looked at these, in this case, um, we had 67 such publications. And in, in looking through those publications, we encounter 188 major documented errors, inadequacies, or shortcomings related to trying to hindcast what clouds were like under certain circumstances. And, and so what we're reporting is, is not any original work of ours here. We're reporting what climatologists themselves have done in trying to find out if their models really work as they're supposed to, by trying to predict what the past was like. And we find out, in, in this case of clouds, there were 188 major documented errors or inadequacies or shortcomings, whichever you want to wish to call them. And, you know, today's climate models are not predicting them properly. They are not what we find occurred in the real world back to the point they were trying to, to apply to. And we do this for a whole number of important things that uh, that are associated with this uh, situation. 
We do this for the El Nino Southern Oscillation. We do it for monsoons. We do it for oceans. We do it for permafrost, precipitation, radiation, sea ice, soil moisture, and a number of miscellaneous phenomena. And again, what we're doing is finding out have these people been successful or do they fail in hindcasting, you know, what happened in the past with respect to all these phenomena. When we add them together, we find a total of 2,418 failures of today's best climate models in that they fail to hindcast all of these things appropriately. And the people, the scientists who have uh, made these analyses, they are the ones who, who list these things here. We just go through and count them up, and this is what we find. It's absolutely incredible. It makes you wonder how anyone would believe what climate models of today predict about Earth's climate of tomorrow if they can't do what happened a few decades in the past. So when you're chronicling these errors, is there a certain margin of error involved? Because there's, I think, a certain mythology put forward that people say, oh, well, you're just criticizing the models and they might miss it by a tiny bit, but well, the they're basically accurate. The interesting thing here is we are not criticizing the models. We are reporting the criticisms that have been proven by other climate scientists who review these models. And many times it's the, it's the modelers themselves who are even reviewing some of their own work. That and realize and Alex, it, you know, it, there is a wide range of differences in terms of these errors. Uh, in some instances, it'll be the very sign is difference is different. For example, um, the real world, real world data might show that precipitation is increasing and the model data would show that it's decreasing. That's where the sign is completely opposite. The opposite is actually occurring from what the model suggested should happen. So you'll have errors like that. You'll have other errors where it's, it's off by a certain amount and a certain percentage and so forth. But again, error is serious enough that uh, these authors wrote papers about it and described them and mentioned them presumably in the hopes that they can improve the models. But here again, you know, we, you know, we've been looking at these papers and papers that have been published on these, this, these various topics for several years. And we find that as they go from one generation of climate models to the next, that many of these errors remain. They propagate, they, they, they exist, they remain, they just are not getting rid of them as the billions and billions of dollars are spent to make these models better and more accurate. Now, at the, the beginning of the document, which we'll uh, link to, there's this great diagram that says modeling the climate system, and you show a number of different drivers of climate, and I think it's, it's just a great visual for people to have. I mean, you have the ocean, different elements of the ocean, wind and wave, winds and waves, uh, elements, some elements that people are familiar with, like clouds, some elements they might not be familiar with, even something like marine biology. Um, I like this as a as a starting point to think about the problem. Could you just give an overview about how the modelers think about the problem of trying to predict the future of this kind of system versus how you think about the problem? Because one interpretation might be to say, oh, well, you just want to change the climate sensitivity variable, and then the model would be good. But I gather that's not all that's going on. 
Yeah, you know, and not a climate modeler myself, so getting into the minds of some of them is maybe the wrong person to ask. But I, I think a lot of the difference is um, it, there's just there's just I think for them a lot of it is linear that they expect you put the CO2 in that you're going to get this this output of change that's you know pretty simple, pretty well defined, and you know under normal circumstances all else being equal, yeah that would seem right. But the problem is. Earth's atmosphere ocean system is incredibly complex, as you alluded to in that in that diagram. There are so many forcings and feedbacks that can take place and that can change, not just by CO2, but by nature itself. There's biogeochemical cycles that can take place where you can have the rise in CO2, for example, can can uh, increase production and growth of phytoplankton that release a substance into the atmosphere that actually um, acts to, to backscatter incoming radiation from the earth and cool the planet. And so, you know, things like that, it's incredibly complex that tend to get missed altogether. And we don't even talk about a lot of those things that were missed in this paper, but there's a multitude of forcings and feedbacks that just, we don't know a whole lot about to begin with or are missing altogether from from the climate models as well. So then to take your approach, because the subtitle is which best predicts Earth, which best predicts Earth's climate future, to what extent are you trying to predict the climate future and to what extent do you think it's constructive versus not constructive to do so? You know, I think that, um, Ask me that question again. I want to make sure. <laughs> well, it's, so I mentioned the subtitle is you have mathematical models versus real world data. And then the subtitle is which best predicts Earth's climatic future. So that implies that the mathematical models predicted one way and you predicted another way. But I'm curious how much you are trying to predict because it seems like part of it is the system is too complex for us to get. And therefore, certain types of predictions would be, uh, we can say, arrogant or unwarranted and could be destructive to even try to engage it. I think that we just concentrate on, you know, is CO2 going to do what uh, these, these models suggest? And uh, if they make errors in almost everything else here, you know, why would one think they're going to get carbon dioxide right? And especially when I know I didn't explain it very well to you about these natural experiments, but these natural experiments, which uh, I have done, and I'm sure others have probably done since that time, suggest that that the impact of, let's say, a 300-part-per-million increase in CO2 um, is probably only going to be a tenth as much as uh, what's being being predicted by the models today. Well, let's let's go back to to natural experiments then. So one one sort of scenario that we'll hear is, okay, so the CO2 has a certain logarithmic warming effect, which by itself wouldn't cause this kind of catastrophe, but by that CO2 will increase the amount of water vapor, which is an even more powerful greenhouse gas, and that'll do other things such as melt the ice cap, which will change the albedo, and therefore the overall systematic effect will be dramatic and we'll get our 3.5 or 7 degrees or whatever. And they might say, well, you, you can't invalidate that with your natural experiment because that's necessarily local 
and yet we're dealing with this complex global phenomenon. You know, I don't know, it's hard to answer something like that, but here's another way of looking at this. Independently, you know, we don't, we don't cite any of the stuff that I did over the years with these things. We just concentrate on how well do the climate models predict various climate phenomena now. And we look at, as I mentioned, clouds, monsoons, oceans, all these things. And how do, how do those predictions compare with real-world data that people are measuring nowadays? When we do that, this is what we find, that they fail to predict properly, you know, these various things related to clouds and oceans. See, and, and Alex, too, you can, you know, like you described, they're going to come out with this ultra-big projection, and it begins with the sensitivity of CO2 on temperature. How is the temperature going to change? And then they project the temperature is going to then affect all these other subsystems of the climate, like the melting of the polar ice caps and so forth. Well, you see, we can test that hypothesis of theirs by looking at every 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 single step of their hypothesis. You know, number one, is the temperature dramatically warming as they say it should be warming? Number two, are the polar ice caps melting? Number three, are the sea levels rising at an increasing rate? And so on and so forth. And and we've actually done that, just not in this paper. But when you do that, and, and we've been doing this for years, looking at the peer-reviewed research that comes out based on, again, I'll use that term, real-world data, observations, in other words, you find that time again, time and again, the data are not supporting what the models are projecting at pretty much you know, any interval, in any, system, any part of that system, of the climate system. And we're not saying that. There's people who write these papers themselves are saying that. Um, and so it's just incredible. There's just no, there's no real basis for anything that they're predicting. Yeah, it's, and it's a shame that the climate modelers themselves and the policymakers don't take as much stock as they should in these papers that are coming from researchers from great institutions across the country and across the globe. Because if you just sat and read these papers as we have done, you would have very little faith at all in what the climate models are projecting for the future. Yeah, and this goes to a whole a whole topic that's beyond our scope today about the government science monopoly and, and how, I mean, you know, everyone is being used to come up with these political conclusions and to give them cover and to give them uh, prestige, certainly not to reflect the actual state of knowledge and debate which would be inconvenient for somebody trying to advance an anti-fossil fuel uh, political <laughs> agenda. And, and with that in mind, I, I appreciate Sherwood's point about the key thing being, are these CO2-related predictions accurate? Can they be expected to be accurate? Because that's the genesis of the public's interest in this issue. It's not as if the general public has an inherent issue or inherent interest in predicting the future of the global climate system or even would have expected that you could do that. It's that we were told that this one, uh, this one driver that we were uh, compounding in the atmosphere was going to lead to catastrophe. And it seems like that prediction has completely failed and all the elements, as Craig mentioned, have failed. And so, you know, in my mind, predicting the future of the global climate system isn't a very high priority, especially since it seems rather impossible. What, what can, if anything, be predicted about the future of the global climate system? It's a great question. I think 
Well, one of the one of the first things you learn when you take a class about uh, meteorology is a term called persistence, and that is that the likelihood of of tomorrow's weather being similar to today is pretty high, and 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 that's a that's that's a great way to look at things. And geologists have done this as well. You can look back at the historic temperatures, and you can you know look at how is how temperatures. I'm I'm going to take temperatures as an example, but how have temperatures changed through time? Do they get so high? Do they get so low? How fast and how rapid might they change? And we, if we can look and characterize and describe and understand how it changes or has changed in the past, that's going to give us a really good idea on what to expect for the future. And again, when you do that, when you look at the temperature records, the sea ice records, precipitation records, and so forth, again and again, over and over and over, what you find is that today's climate, when you, when you characterize today's climate, there is absolutely nothing unusual, unnatural, or unprecedented about any of these phenomena. In fact, what's so interesting, if you're just thinking about temperature itself, you know, there's been uh, paleo temperature studies done in many places on Earth. And about 2,000 years ago, there was another warm period, pretty much like it is now. And that was uh, known as the Roman warm period. And then as we move on from there, we drop into the um, Dark Ages cold period. Then we come up again about a thousand years ago with the medieval warm period when it was uh, probably a little warmer than it is now, in fact. Then you're moving forward again. You drop into the Little Ice Age, which was the coldest period of the entire interglacial in which the Earth is uh, certainly still in, and still in still involved in. And then um, uh, a, a few decades ago, um, when the uh, Little Ice Age uh, started to depart and uh, current warming began, and, it, and it's come to, to the temperatures like we have today, and they are no greater than what they were a thousand years and two thousand years ago. And, and even beyond that, we can look at the, at the previous interglacial periods that have occurred over the last million years. Every 100,000 years or so, you'll have an interglacial period. And as far as we can measure, those have been pretty much warmer by a degree or more than the current interglacial. So if there's anything unusual about the current period is that it's, it's been colder than normal. So anyway, so if you, you can look at that. You can look at persistence and, and how things occurred in the past, and that can give you – a pretty darn good idea on what to expect in the future. What is the significance in your mind of the the data for periods long, long ago, such as periods in history where it's calculated that there was twenty times the atmospheric CO two concentration of today? Is that is that significant in your minds in in terms of uh, assessing the catastrophic scenarios? Because at least on the face of it, if you have that much CO two in the air, and we're talking about 350 parts per million being some tipping point, uh, that would seem to be counter evidence, but then sometimes you hear, oh, well, the sun wasn't as bright and that kind of thing. So I'm curious what you think of the evidence about those periods. You know, a great response to that is to, is to look at a larger slide or look, or look at how temperature and CO2 has varied across a larger time slice, not just a, a small interval like the Cretaceous period or so forth, but when you do that, when you look at temperature and CO2, you find that there are many, many times where the temperature will rise, the CO2 will rise, or it will fall. 
or it will remain constant or vice versa. So you, when you look at these records, you'll find that, yes, at times they seem correlated, but at other times they're not. And the fact that they're not, that the temperature will rise and the CO2 will fall in the historic record suggests that CO2 is not the all-important driver of climate change that is often made out to be. And so what will happen, you'll often get these climate alarmists that will look at the CO2, like Al Gore, for example, who go around during his inconvenient truth um, when he would speak about that and throw up his slides showing the CO2 concentration over the last 400,000 years and then a massive increase over the last 150 years and then plot the temperature and you see a massive increase. Well, on that scale, it looked like CO2 is driving it. But then you could zoom in a little bit closer even. You'd find that actually... Uh, when you have these glacial interglacial changes, the temperature leads first, anywhere from 600 to 2,000 years before the CO2. So um, that pretty much disproves that theory that CO2 is this all-important driver. So when I look at, at previous periods of history and, and how warm is it and how high was the CO2, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Well, I guess my context with that is if – if you have periods, even if it's a lot warmer, because if you look at those things, you, one thing that's notable is the temperature is fairly low now compared to the, you know, in, in a geological context, if you're talking about as old as the Earth is. Um, it, it, you know, the fact that life thrived during those periods is heartening because my, my view morally is there's, there's no inherent perfect amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And, and a lot of your work has been showing that the more CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, the, the more plant growth we see. So if people said, oh, well, it's going to get five degrees Celsius warmer over the next X hundred years, that could well be good uh, for human beings. So, so part of what they're saying is, well, CO2 is this big driver, which I think it definitely isn't. But they're also saying, well, to the extent it's, it's a driver, any kind of warming is going to make the earth uninhabitable for humans. And that seems even more baseless to me. So even if CO2 was a bigger driver than it is, I don't think it would necessarily be bad to have more of it in the atmosphere. You know, one other thing I should have mentioned, I was talking about the Roman warm period and the medieval warm period and now the current warm period and the, the couple of cold periods in between there. Um, the um, CO2 content of the air changed hardly at all. It was pretty much flat during all that period. And so something is is making the, uh, the temperature change on that uh, uh, time scale, and it's uh, not the CO2. And historically, you could jump off the comment you're making, the point you're making too, Alex, there is, you know, look at, look at what happened globally historically with the different nations of the earth during those warm periods as well. You know, we, we call it the Roman warm period for a reason. It was a, the flourishing of Roman society. Same during medieval times. We call it the Dark Ages a cold period because – not much really happened. It was the Dark Ages. Everybody was was worried about the glacier coming down and taking their lands and so forth. Um, you're right. Warmer tends to be better. And I think that if the temperature warmed one degree, two degrees, it would be great. It would be a lot of great things could happen to the earth and to the flora and fauna. Yeah, so this just shows the just the deep-seated prejudice against any kind of human action or human change that there's just this assumption that it must be bad and, and that's one of the things i love 
about documenting your work in, in the section of my book, about which I call Fertilizer Effect, just how no, even though we learn in school that CO2 uh, is essential to plant growth and more of it would lead to more, people don't even consider that possibility because if it's man-made CO2, then it must be uh, then it must be bad. So I think that that so much of your work has gone to show people, oh, wait, it might be a good thing. Human beings doing things isn't necessarily bad, which I would say is a, is a huge understatement. Now, since I have Sherwood here and you've had such a, a history in this movement, you, you mentioned a little bit about your own development of, of your work, uh, but I'd like to know your observations over time about this issue becoming politicized because you have been involved in it uh, for so long. So I realize that's a big topic, but uh, anything you could say I would find fascinating about that issue. Well, I really don't, I really don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> it has become politicized, um, which is bad, I think. Um, it's making me think of another aspect too. You know, morality. Um, food is, is hard to get in some parts of the world, even now. But um, it, it, I think we just, in fact, let me put it this way. Right now, we are using most of the available water to grow the amount of food that we're growing right now. And... Uh, the population of the planet is still um, is still growing. In fact, by 2050, there's going to be considerably more people than there are on the planet now. I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's Nine probably billion. a couple of billion or something. And the, we're already using most of the land that's good for growing, and there's really hardly any excess water at this point. So the question is, how are those people going to be fed? It seems to me the only way they're going to be fed is to let the CO2 continue to rise uh, so that water use efficiency, that's another thing that CO2 in, helps in plants. It increases their water use efficiency. They can produce uh, more growth with less water. And we're going to need that to feed the, the population of the planet just a few more decades from now. You know, I think what political aspect of that of that, of that point my father's making is you know we have this this concern this great concern but yet we're using all this land and we're taking more land to use biofuels which aren't even needed you know they're they're taking that land for biofuels in the name of a co2 crisis you know when in, in fact we actually need the co2 to prevent a crisis you know it's it, politically it's upside down Interesting, you know, lately there's been a lot of talk about morality, you know, and uh, the Pope getting involved in it and so forth. And I, I wonder what's, what's the moral thing to do? Is it to try to reduce the CO2 and not let it go up anymore? Or to let us take its natural course, which will help to feed those people that will be here in 2050, and which we would probably not be able to do without it? I don't, I don't agree with that exactly in the sense that, I mean, I agree that the CO2 is, is contributing positively. And if, if you take it away, then you need to contribute something else. But in human ingenuity can do lots and lots of things. And for instance, different kinds of genetic engineering can make 
crops less, uh, need water less, and you can have other kinds of farming. So I, th I think the fundamental, though, is you have a movement in the green movement that is anti-technology and anti-development across the board, and thus they, they deprive us of the many different courses of action that can lead to more food growth. But I want to go back to my uh, politicizing question and, and, and focus it more on the actual representation of the science. So Sherwood, you've been in the field for many decades, and thus you, you must have known people who are scientists who are in the field who either have participated in some of these very destructive consensus statements or who have remained silent. So since I haven't been in that position at all, I always wonder what what's really going on behind the scenes because the evidence seems so compelling that, that these catastrophist theories are wrong and yet the scientific community, so to speak, doesn't stand up to fight against those who, who claim that that is their universal position. You know, I don't know too much about it, but I would think that... Um, <clears throat> uh, that well, there are alternative. Let me let me refresh his memory, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> when he was uh, first getting involved in this issue back in the 1970s, he published a paper in Nature, and uh, it, it, showing that the sensitivity of CO2 was not as great as the models were projecting at that time. And as soon as that was that was published, there were people up the chain in Washington D.C. and other scientists across the nation that started writing emails together saying that uh, to the journal that published this paper, that why did you publish this paper? You should never have published it. Also, uh, get, trying to marshal the forces against him and his work. And we only found this out because there was a student uh, doing a PhD study a few months ago that dug up all of these old emails and sent it to him. And uh, you know, it's kind of interesting just what took place way back then to stop um, his side or or you know, the side that, he, that we represent from being known. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, it does. It does. And, um, you know, they must have had ulterior motives other than just pure science because the pure science was pretty straight, I think. You seem somewhat insulated uh, from them. I mean, because it, it seems like this is a field where people really get persecuted, particularly I, I can imagine, and I think Craig, we actually talked about this, you yeah. imagine a, a, uh, you know, your own child going into this field and what it would be like uh, today, given the climate, so to speak. Well, let me uh, refresh his memory even more. So a few <laughs> years later, he wrote a book, uh, Carbon Dioxide Friend or Foe, and then another one, Carbon Dioxide Earth, and Global Change Earth and Transition, where he talked a lot about these benefits of CO2 on plants. And at the time, uh, it became a little bit uh, too damaging to the political aspirations of Al Gore, mm -hmm. who then set up a Senate subcommittee hearing, uh, pretty much from my perspective, all in a manner to discredit him and his work. Went to great lengths to do so and to keep him from speaking out. Maybe you could say something about that. Yeah, it happened. I was there. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> And the next day we left town and my wife and I drove like 1,300 miles before we stopped again <laughs> to get as far away from the place as we could. Um, but uh, somehow I, I survived. 
Yeah, being out here in, in the Phoenix area, you get a little insulated from Washington, I suppose. Yeah, well, I would say Sherwood doesn't seem to have much of a, a victim mentality or a wounded uh, mentality. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, well, we're laughing, but I mean, this this stuff is horrific. And I think it just, every every person we've had on the show who is in who's been in this field and questioned things just everyone has the same fundamental story about it be their lives being made difficult uh, yeah. by it and i think to the extent that the person is younger it's more difficult because if you got in the field earlier maybe got tenure uh, at least a certain reputation it's easier but what would it be like for someone today maybe i'll ask craig this what would it be if, if you got tried to get in the field today what would it be like? You know, I, I'm absolutely convinced. And I, I have a son who's in college right now and who actually wants to follow in my footsteps. And I've had to, have, I've had to sit him down and, and uh, strongly caution him to choose a different career because of, because of our name, because of the last name and who we are and the work that we've done. I, I know that there is absolutely no way um, he'll be able to find a job and be successful. Because most of the jobs are government jobs, number one, and that's you know been taken over anyway with a particular mandate and, and vision on this issue. But you, I think you're absolutely right. It's very, very difficult for a person today to come out and be an independent thinker. Um, there's a lot of groupthink taking place, and if you don't agree with the groupthink, you're ostracized. You can't publish, and if you can't publish, then you can't get tenure, like you said, and you can't really – improve your career so you're, you're really stuck you're stuck um, and uh, I don't know what the solution is I'm not sure how to get out of that but I think part of the reason or part of the answer to that is it's going to be a generation of change that has to take place where the old guard finally retires and moves out and the new guard comes through and more and more people here and there uh, put forth a shining light and you know are willing to stand up against some of this bullyism and so forth, and uh, that may be what it takes. But, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. It's going to be very, very difficult for anybody to be independent-minded starting out in their career. I think Sherwood wants to say something. Oh, Justin, I think I survived because I had already had uh, 13 years of, uh, of employment at the U.S. Water Conservation Laboratory at the time that Al Gore sort of dragged me to D.C., and that kind of helped. Um, and then let me see. I was thinking of something else too, but I'm getting to the age where it's easy to forget. <laughs> you had a couple of good people in D.C. that looked after you as well. Oh, yeah. Another one was <clears throat> I, I had heard that uh, there was a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences back at that period of time that uh, somebody put forth a, a desire to censure me. I have no idea exactly what that would have meant, but I heard subsequently from two other scientists who had been present at that meeting describe how one of the two got up and uh, and uh, I can't remember I don't know exactly what he said, but he calmed them down and kept it from happening. Um, so whatever censuring would mean, that's what they wanted to do with me. And, and that was back then, you know, thirty some years ago. You can imagine the pressure today. Yeah. What? How often does the National Academy of Sciences go out of its way to censure somebody? It seems like a weird 
it seems yeah. like if you were going to do it, you could, you could do it to a lot of people. Yeah, I I had never heard of it before or since, and I don't know what it would have entailed, but it doesn't sound like it would be something pleasant. <laughs> um, okay, just to return to the paper before we wrap up, uh, anything else the audience should know about the paper? Again, we'll link to it, but but any other takeaways that, that you think they should hear on this episode? You know, let me just reemphasize an earlier point, if I can, and that is that you know this is not an original work done by us. One more time, this is we have gone through and we have used quotations from the authors themselves of these original papers, and there's hundreds of papers that this is based upon. So these are criticisms in the author's own words, and so that that holds a lot more strength yeah. than saying that it's just us criticizing them as climate skeptics as we are. These are climate modelers criticizing the climate modeler enterprise. So in that regard, this study should hold a lot more weight and should not be dismissed as easily as uh, a, a, your general climate alarmist would want to because it was produced by climate skeptics. Yeah. All right, great. Yeah, so I think that that has definitely come through clearly. Any, any final words for the audience about anything else Anything else you want to say? It's been it's been very exciting having both of you here. So any any final takeaways about climate science or or plants or whatever else you'd you'd want them to leave with? Don't worry about CO two. Breathe breathe easily. <laughs> it's uh, things are gonna work out right. You know the climate is not is 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 not going to hell in a handbasket. It's uh, it's doing just fine. And we as a society will do just fine in the climate as it changes, as it always has changed. Uh, in the near in the near future and two three hundred years from now, and in fact, we expect that if it does warm, just like you mentioned earlier, humanity should benefit both the flora and the fauna, especially from CO two as CO two rises as well. And as you alluded to, that extra carbon dioxide is going to provide a number of benefits, great benefits, increasing plant growth, plant yields, crop yields, uh, and so on and so forth. So, again, it's all nothing, not much to be worried about. I could tell. I could tell you one word. Ditto. <laughs> well, it's it's good. Well, you've taught him well, apparently. <laughs> I, I would just add, uh, since this is my own focus, is the the energy side of of the equation of you know burning a hydrocarbon, is that in a sense the climate will be just fine, but in a sense it won't be fine if we don't have the energy and development to cope with it because. Climate yeah. is not always very friendly, contrary to the Disney narrative that we hear about the non-CO2 uh, increased climate. So, I mean, the, you know, even even right now I'm in, in Laguna Beach, even my ability to live comfortably here year-round with any resource I could want is, is, the, is, the, is a phenomenon that's unique to the fossil fuel civilization of the last couple hundred years. So I think it's, it's great for people to know both sides, both what fossil fuels and industrialization make possible and then that this byproduct that everyone is afraid of is in fact a beneficent uh, byproduct. So I, I'm grateful to both of you uh, particularly for making the latter point. So thanks so much for, for being on the show and it was really a privilege to have both of you. Thank you Alex and thanks for all of your attention to the energy aspect of this debate. It's very important and we're, we appreciate all that you do as well. Thanks again to Drs. Craig and 
Sherwood Idsa. That was a lot of fun for me. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I think we covered most of what I wanted to cover on the call, so I'll just give you some updates about what's going on. Most excitingly for me, we have a new course coming out. It's called How to Talk to Anyone About Energy. And to make sure you hear about it first, just go to industrialprogress.com, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. You'll hear about it in the next week or two. It'll be available in time for Christmas for sure. Uh, we almost have all the technical stuff set up. I've recorded the course. And I think this is a new kind of thing that doesn't exist anywhere on the market, as far as I know, which just really teaches you the mechanics of how to structure a conversation about energy or environmental issues, but really anything else, and and how to make that conversation go well, and not in a sort of manipulative, how to win every argument every time. You'll see it's not even about winning. It's about structuring the discussion, the inquiry, the collaboration, which is really what a conversation should be, in a certain way, such that the truth is far more likely to come out and the dynamic is far more pleasant than it would otherwise be. So we haven't decided on exact pricing, but I can just tell you it will be affordable. I want as many people to use it as possible. And uh, I'm very much encouraging companies to buy it along with the moral case for fossil fuels. It's really designed as a companion. And so we'll make sure that it's at a price where you can afford to buy it as a Christmas gift for every employee. And I think it'll help everyone a lot this holiday season and beyond. So hope you enjoy that a lot. I've gotten some, I sent out about 50 advanced copies to get some feedback. So far the feedback has been really good. And yeah, can't wait for you to hear it. All right. Uh, just make sure that you're on top of everything else. Check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Facebook and or Twitter, I guess. Uh, there's the Alex Epstein page, the I Love Fossil Fuels page, I Love Nuclear page, and Center for Industrial Progress page. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Glad that people are enjoying Power Hour. Feel free to send me comments about Power Hour. And please spread the word. Share our iTunes link. Share industrialprogress.com. The more people listen to it, the more motivated I am to keep producing it every week. And if you really like it, I hope you review it on iTunes. If you don't like it, I'm not as hopeful that you review it on iTunes. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, we'll, we will be back with another great guest, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.